0: Just a quick content warning. This episode contains very brief mentions of sexual, physical, and emotional violence involving children, childhood abuse, sexual abuse of a child, bullying, and substance use. The origin of the word trauma in the English language dates back to around 1690, when it was first used to mean a physical wound. By the late 1890s, right around the dawn of modern psychotherapy, The meaning of the word trauma evolved, less to represent physical wounds and more to represent psychic or psychological ones. Today, the word has exploded in popular lexicon, permeating everyday conversations. I'm sure you've used it yourself. We hear jokes and hot takes about trauma across social media. We discuss it in the gym, in the yoga studio. We talk about it at the coffee shop, and it may even come up at the dinner table. But what do we mean When we talk about trauma, really, what is trauma and how does it affect an estimated seven or even eight out of 10 people worldwide today, a very special look at trauma and what the new story about trauma could become with the help of a clinically proven therapy called EMDR. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by not one but two very special guests who will help us take a full 360 degree view of trauma and one particular therapy that over 30 years has shown to be one of the most effective and cost efficient treatments for trauma related symptoms, even for those who have experienced symptoms sometimes upwards of decades. We're joined today by Michael Baldwin and Deborah Korn, co authors of Every Memory Deserves Respect. Their book, which is about EMDR, that if you don't know, stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, try to say that five times fast, tells Michael's story as a trauma survivor. While Deborah's extensive experience in the field provides deep clinical knowledge and education about how EMDR can help people recover from the effects of trauma. First, please join me in welcoming Michael Baldwin. Michael is a celebrated leader in the communications industry with more than 35 years of award-winning work in advertising, where he has built global brands, led the development of global communications teams, and developed world-class creative campaigns. He is the founder and principal of the branding and communication firm Michael Baldwin, Inc., based in New York City. Michael, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Dave, for having us.
0: And next, please join me in welcoming Deborah L. Korn, Doctor of Psychology. Uh, Deborah is a clinical psychologist and consultant. She's a teacher and a researcher who presents and consults internationally on the treatment of adult survivors of childhood abuse and neglect. She's been on the faculty of the EMDR Institute in California for more than 25 years. She's also on the faculty of the Trauma Research Foundation in Boston, Massachusetts. She currently serves on the editorial board as well of the Journal of EMDR Practice and Research and has her own private practice based in Cambridge, Mass. Uh, Debbie, welcome to you and thank you for being here as well. Thank you, Dave. It's an absolute delight to be here with you. I'm so excited to speak with you both. I really enjoyed Every Memory Deserves Respect, the book that you co wrote. I do want to say at the top, just because I've heard you both in other interviews clarify this too, because it could be easy to confuse or assume that, Debbie, you treated Michael, but that's actually not the case. You two came together to co write this book based on your own respective experiences and expertise. And we'll get into both of those perspectives and experiences with you. you know, individually and throughout the course of this conversation. But I wonder first, just to ask you quickly, um, Debbie, why did you want to collaborate with someone like Michael or Michael specifically, I should say, on this project? What was it about Michael and his story that felt like they provided an opportunity for you to share what you've been learning and researching with, you know, trauma and EMDR throughout your career?
2: Uh, Well... Michael was profoundly compelling in my very first conversation with him. Uh, He brought such a sense of enthusiasm and creativity, and I just couldn't resist. You know, I immediately got excited about creating an EMDR book unlike anything that had ever come before, you know, one that my clients would actually read, one that I could share uh, with my parents who've never really understood what I do for a living, um, one that I could share with my primary care doctor, my chiropractor, my lawyer, you know, really a book that was um, truly accessible and user friendly. And um, for me, writing a book like this was a way for me to combine my commitment to mental health advocacy with my love for trauma-informed clinical work and teaching and EMDR therapy. Um, so it really was a, just a perfect fit for me in terms of bringing all of my interests together.
0: It's wonderful. Yeah, we'll talk about that advocacy throughout our conversation, I'm sure. And Michael, I have a similar question for you. Um, What was it like for you to have your own personal story and experiences, many of which I'm sure you'll be the first to say are are very intimate and can be very vulnerable to, to tell, let alone in a public forum, right. As through a book, Um, what was it like to have your story and experiences paired with the expert work of someone like Debbie? Uh, What dimension did that add to, to your story as you told it?
1: I think it adds the um, sort of magic ingredient because Uh, from the very beginning, what I wanted to do was to create a book that did two things that decoded trauma for the lay public. And it also introduced the lay public to EMDR therapy, which I had never encountered myself until I walked into the office of a EMDR therapist, who was the eighth therapist I had seen over the course of 22 years. So, um, uh, essential in this formula was having my story coupled with the didactic narrative that Debbie provides. So um, I look back and I think, well, what possibly could I have been thinking that I'm going to be able to find a leader in the EMDR field who's going to be willing and going to have the time to commit to a co-author writing project for a book? Never having met me, not knowing me from Adam, I look back and I think I must have been crazy. But Debbie was the one who stuck with me and decided to commit herself to this project. And, you know, it it couldn't have been a better fit and it couldn't have been. and, And I say that mainly probably for the readers
0: yeah and I do want to mention give a shout out to your EMDr therapist michael uh, Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita, who's based in gloustonbury connecticut um and and who did introduce you to EMDR with great effect so I want to give a proper shout out to to dr uh, Magnavita but uh yeah, so before we zip right along. Uh, and, and start to talk about like trauma, clinical definitions, stuff like that. Which you know, as I've disclosed on the show before, as a graduate student of mental health counseling, I just I love to get into. I do kind of want to like set a little bit of a stage, Michael, with me, if you will, um, through the lens of your career trajectory, which is like super impressive. There's so many accomplishments throughout your CV. You've had so many interesting um, successes and experiences. Uh, I know that you worked for uh, NEXT, which some listeners may know is Steve Jobs' technology company, which he founded after he left Apple. I think in like the mid, I think it was in 1985, um, and, and ran for at least I, I think about 15 years, maybe longer. You also worked at the global advertising firm Ogilvy and Mather in New York City, and you know your your resume, your bio is super impressive. And I wonder if you could tell us about. Give us like a little glimpse of your career trajectory, but then tell us about how through your accomplishments and, and or how your accomplishments l- did not give somebody who might have been meeting you in a, in a business setting the full picture of who you were as a human and what you're also kind of carrying and experiencing behind the scenes. What, what in other words, does your resume not say about uh, what you're experiencing in your life uh, at this really pivotal point in your, in your career?
1: So I would say my resume says nothing about my interior life and that my resume is a chronicling of all of the mitigating behaviors that I adopted to mitigate against a core belief of feeling worthless, unlovable, and no good. So I look back at that CV and I have a very different feeling about it now than I did then because it was... Uh, a case where I was just, I wasn't actually, I wasn't doing, I was basically compelled. I became a status and achievement junkie trying to, again, as I said earlier, mitigate against this feeling um, that I had since pre-verbal uh, days of being unlovable and, and, and uh, no good and uh, worthless. And so um, it was a sort of a treadmill of, Goal set, goal achieve, goal set, goal achieve, goal set, goal achieve. Run the Boston Marathon, don't walk a step. Um, Get a job in 13 days after having gotten into medical school and then decide not to go to medical school. Uh, uh, You know, um, be the first person in the world to register his surname as a domain name in 1994. I mean, people say, how did you ever get Baldwin.com? All these things have no lasting... um, Effect in terms of, uh, or didn't in terms of uh, addressing or or fighting or resolving what my inner life was all about, because it was a facade that I created, this facade of perfection, and I was you know a workaholic. So, bottom line is, it was just a construction that I built um, so that no one had any idea of what my inner life was really like
0: yeah Debbie. I want to turn over to you before we go further into michael's story to and I want to kind of try this alternating back and forth um, and Michael, thank you for that because it's really powerful, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening who also consider themselves to be high achievers, and you know it's not to say that everybody who does have a high achieving kind of personality is hiding from something, let alone hiding from or or trying to cover up uh, or escape from feelings of unworthiness or actual symptoms of trauma there's a wide gamut of of experiences right, in life as a whole. But I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that feeling of burying ourselves in our work or our studies and finding an outlet in a way that feels good, but over time you realize you can't keep running from it forever. You can't keep pushing yourself further and further into a so-called accomplishment um, because at the the end of the day, there you are. For those who have a history with Uh, trauma, Debbie. I wonder if you could, at a really lay level for us, layperson level, tell us what trauma is, what it actually is, and how trauma affects the brain.
2: Sure. So, trauma is a part of life. (laughs) Um, As you said at the start of the show, something like 70% of adults have experienced at least one significant shock trauma, big T trauma. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But we define trauma in our book as any experience that feels overwhelming, triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror, and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. Now, trauma is both objective and subjective, right? It's both the event and the experience of the event. And what we know is that no two people are going to experience a single event in the same way. What might be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for the next person. Though, of course, there are some kinds of events that anyone would agree are traumatic with a big T. So it's not just what happens to you or what happened to you, but it's also... Most importantly, what happens inside of you, how it affects you, how you interpret the experience. And we know that the greater the number of traumas that you're exposed to, the greater the psychological and the physical toll. We know that trauma is cumulative, meaning the more traumas, the greater the effect. And we know that it's also developmentally bound, which means traumas that occur earlier in your development, earlier in life, Often have greater effect. We're more vulnerable as little people than we are as adults. And when I talk about trauma, I talk about big T trauma and little t trauma. This comes from Francine, Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR. Big T trauma refers to events that most anyone would consider traumatic, shock traumas, where the person perceives a potential threat to their survival or the survival of loved ones. So here we're talking about childhood, sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, uh, rape or assault, physical assault, uh, the traumatic death or the murder of a loved one, um, combat-related trauma, devastation related to an environmental disaster, um, witnessing violence. When we talk about little t trauma, we're talking about experiences that people might not necessarily recognize as traumatic or events that might not necessarily meet the diagnostic manual criteria for so-called, quote, trauma. So here we're talking about attachment trauma. It's sometimes called developmental trauma, Uh, criticism, covert bullying, experiences of betrayal, um, experiences involving humiliation or failure or aloneness, uh, subtle microaggressions, as well as blatant discrimination or hostility related to race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, appearance. Um, Examples of little t traumas from adulthood might be experiences related to a divorce or losing a job, a difficult move or the discovery of infidelity or a partner's affair. Uh, Examples in childhood feeling ignored, feeling different, uh, unable to measure up, or a sense of powerlessness to control kind of the craziness or the chaos in your family. Um, I would always mention when I talk, I always mention when I talk about trauma that we're talking about both commission and omission. By commission, we're talking about things that are committed right? It refers to the things that happen to you, an assault, the emotional or physical or sexual abuse. When we talk about omission, we're referring to situations where things were supposed to happen, but didn't. Situations where someone was not properly protected, they were not properly listened to or cared for or valued. So here we're talking about experiences of neglect deprivation, abandonment, uh, discrimination, alienation. And as far as trauma and the brain is concerned, it's helpful to think of the brain as being made up of three smaller brains. And we talk about this in the book, the thinking brain, the emotional brain, and the instinctual brain. Now the thinking brain is responsible for thinking, talking, remembering, reasoning, creating. The emotional brain is about feeling and remembering, detecting threat, interacting with others, and the instinctual brain has to do with things like sleeping, eating, breathing, heart rate, uh, blood pressure. And in response to trauma, the emotional brain in conjunction with the instinctual brain mobilizes and winds up hijacking the thinking brain. The limbic system of the emotional brain goes into overdrive. Uh, The sympathetic nervous system automatically kicks into high gear and everything gets focused on survival. The brain prepares you to fight or take flight, right? We see things like heart rate increases and pupils dilating and airways opening wider. And we become hyper-focused, scanning for danger, looking for escape routes, sometimes freezing when the threat feels particularly overwhelming and there's no possibility of escape. And the thinking brain's executive control network gets suppressed cutting the thinking you out of the decision-making loop so ideally after a trauma is over the thinking brain is able to reestablish control but in many cases particularly when there's a diagnosis of ptsd the emotional brain remains stuck in overdrive and continues to inhibit the thinking brain's function people remain in high alert and particularly reactive to anything that reminds them of their trauma. The brain isn't able to effectively evaluate whether someone or something is a real threat or not. And with prolonged or repeated exposure to trauma, trauma, chronic trauma, this state of high activation or hyperarousal, freeze, fight, flight, becomes chronic. And it can lead to anxiety, difficulties with self-regulation, irritability, aggression. And sometimes when the level or the duration of stress becomes too great, a person's nervous system shifts into a shutdown or a collapse mode, what we call hypoarousal. And many complex traumatic stress disorders reflect this chronic state of shutdown or immobilization. It shows up as despair, hopelessness, numbing, dissociation, And of course, we know that when people are uncomfortable in their bodies, either from hyper arousal or hypo arousal shutdown, they turn to things like drugs or alcohol or food or sex or other addictive behaviors to try to regulate their nervous system. So we see people coming in for therapy with all different kinds of problems presenting issues um, that don't necessarily look like they're connected to trauma. But indeed, as we poke around and look a little more deeply, we find out nine times out of 10, there are traumatic or adverse experiences in a person's history that can explain some of these behaviors that have taken shape over time.
0: Thank you so much. That's so thorough. We could have a whole hour-long Many hours long conversation just about that one answer alone. And you're, you're both nodding. Michael's nodding. And Michael, I want to turn over to you because you told us a bit earlier about, you know, um, the, the superficiality or of your resume and how that represents nothing of who you were as a person and who you are as a person, that facade effect of using work to, um, kind of like hide from yourself in these different things that you were, that you were carrying with you would you mind telling us a little bit about the the kinds of, of, of trauma that you experienced and a little bit of how um, how that was affecting you behind the scenes if you will throughout your not only just your career but but your life so we can kind of kind of ground some of these these concepts into the story that you've told in your book
1: So here's a contrast to what you're describing earlier as this person with this resume. When I walked into Dr. Magnavita's office, um, I knew that a lot of bad things happened to me when I was young, but I never conceptualized them as being traumatic. Um, I never thought of them as having anything to do with my adult emotional issues and struggles. Uh, I never thought of myself as a victim or a survivor. And I also didn't consciously remember some of the things that had happened to me. I only had fragments of memories that made like little sense to me. In fact, I remember even I would share some of these with other people. Looking back now, I'm canning kind of amazed that I actually did that because when they got put together, they were pretty bad, you know, events that took place. Um, so I came to understand my trauma history by way of EMDR therapy with my EMDR therapist, and in my case, it started with what he referred to as willful neglect on the part of both of my parents. Um, I'll give you one little anecdote. I mean, when I was maybe around two in Denver, I'd be put in the backyard with a diaper, bare feet, and no supervision, just left there. And I would find my way down the back alley and down into the intersection of where we lived in Denver. And a neighbor would see me and then bring me home. And the weird thing about this is, you know, growing up, you know, we, we would laugh about these stories like this. Um, but you know, these days that would be a phone call to the childhood protective services. Um, so, you know, I also was a, um, victim of bullying. My, my older brother was a really, uh, serious bully at home and I had a bully, bullies at school and anyone who's listening, who's had to deal with being bullied, you know, that you live in a state of terror. You never, ever feel safe ever. Um, as far as abuse goes, I was uh, abused sexually, physically, and emotionally. And you put all this together, and it's not surprising. I couldn't focus in on anything. I couldn't tune into anything. As an adult, I was always uh, confused as to why I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know anything about local government. I didn't even know about music. I didn't know anything about uh, you know most of the things that people take for granted because it was just all kind of unavailable to me because of this just crazy mixed up brain that I had it was basically short circuited. So, you know, for the longest time growing up, I couldn't read. I had to have extensive tutoring. I would go to regular school and then i go to reading school after regular school. I had a math tutor and a reading tutor. This is an elementary school when I was a child. Um, and I was also accident prone. So uh, it was a word my mother used all the time. And so I probably had about five or six concussions on my forehead, always the same place. I would just fall over and land on a rock or the sidewalk or something. And and another example of sort of misattuned parenting, my parents' uh, solution or remedy for that was to put a piece of industrial carpeting on my forehead. I have many pictures and you see these kids and then this one sort of freak that was me with this piece of huge piece of industrial carpeting on my forehead, which was their parenting style. Um, So, you know, aside from all that, I was, um, you
0: know, fine. <laughs> so we see the cumulative effect and that was a great example. Thank you for that, Michael. Thank you for sharing. That. I know you've shared it often, but I'm sure it's, well, I'm projecting, but I, I'm sure it's not always pleasant to relive it every time you talk about your book and your, and your life story. But so we hear there, the various levels, the various forms of abuse, um, which, which happened over a prolonged period of time, the developmental and attachment, uh, traumas around the n- neglect, those uh, so there was the there's trauma based on omission as you were saying Debbie and commission right the things that were were exactly. done that that resulted in the traumatic abuse like being hit or or being touched inappropriately mm-hmm. then the uh, commission the things that weren't done being left in the backyard to fend for yourself at an inappropriate age and wandering into the street where you could have been hurt or you know or worse um, and you also shared Michael there that. This had a pretty. It seems pretty noticeable now, looking back in hindsight, having done the work that you've done and, and the processing and the healing, that this had a cumulative effect on your development and how you were, you know, how you were able to or or inhibited from developing um, psychosocially in in school and and beyond. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's, um, and then of course, as you said, you you finally entered into Dr. Magnavita's office. I think that was in 2017, right? Yes. So going on six years ago, um, Debbie, now that we've set the stage with Michael's story a bit in his history, can you tell us about EMDR specifically and um, tell us a little bit about, you know, for those who have never experienced it or don't know anything about EMDR, or like I said, that tongue twister, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing as that therapeutic modality. Give us a sense of what that is, please. And what... If we imagine Michael in Doctor Magnavita's office in 2017 for the first time, I will ask you about that, Michael, because I'd love to hear your experience. But um, tell us about what what we know, or what we sense, or what we think knows uh, think know happens to the happens to the brain, into someone's psychology when they're experiencing MDR. Big question, but take take it please and yeah, show, tell us what you know. Yeah, to that question.
2: <laughs> so. Uh, As you said, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Let me just take that apart for a moment. Desensitization refers to the reduction of distress, fear, anxiety. Reprocessing refers to the reevaluation or the restructuring of thoughts and beliefs and the transformation of one's sense of self relative to past traumatic experiences. It's about moving the past into the past so you can live more fully in the present. Now the eye movement part, uh, Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR accidentally discovered that purposely moving your eyes horizontally back and forth while focusing on a traumatic memory leads to a reduction in the vividness and the emotional intensity of the memory. It leads to a reduction in PTSD symptoms. She developed an effective protocol for treating PTSD and trauma related problems using this what we call bilateral stimulation or back and forth eye movements and published her first research study in 1989 working with uh, rape survivors and Vietnam veterans. So hence the name eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Now, EMDR is, um, A memory-focused psychotherapy that helps people deal with the impact and the legacy of trauma and adverse experiences in their lives. It's based on the idea that psychological problems are related to a failure to adequately process traumatic experiences or memories. So unprocessed traumatic memories that are kind of um, frozen or locked in our nervous system continue to affect how we perceive things, decisions we make, reactions we have, the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. And then present day triggers activate these unprecedented, unprocessed traumatic memories. So by triggers, I mean anything that resembles the original event in some way or form. And, the, and these triggers lead to symptoms that cause ongoing distress. Now in EMDR therapy, we help clients access and activate their unprocessed traumatic memories with a set of focus questions. And then we jumpstart the brain's information processing system using bilateral stimulation. Uh, With EMDR reprocessing, a client's distress eventually decreases and relevant information located perhaps in other parts of the brain, helpful present day perspectives get integrated. So beliefs like, wait a minute, it's over. I'm safe now. This happened 30 years ago, or this happened a year ago. Um, I was only a kid doing the best that I could. It wasn't actually my fault, I'm in control now, right? I have choices. These are the kinds of beliefs that get integrated over the course of EMDR therapy as compared to the trauma-focused beliefs that people come in with. And there are shifts in thoughts, but also in feelings, behaviors, and physical sensations. Healing involves spontaneous movement toward more positive thinking, more manageable feelings, and a significant reduction in a level of disturbance experienced in one's body. And the theory behind EMDR argues that the mind can heal from psychological trauma in the same way that the body heals from physical trauma. We're all physiologically geared uh, toward the achievement of optimal health.
0: Yeah. So there's the qualities there to break down. And thank you for that it was a big question, but that great answer, um, of EMDR. So we're using eye movement to replicate bilateral stimulation. So that's the movement of the eyes, correct? So we're kind of activating different areas of the brain. Is that accurate to say? Um, well, there are many, many different hypotheses
2: about why EMDR works or how EMDR works. Bilateral stimulation refers to any facilitated stimulation that challenges the client to orient or track laterally back and forth with their attention, stimulating both sides of the brain. Um, And we now know uh, since the development of EMDR back in 1989, 87, 89, that multiple forms of bilateral stimulation can be effective with EMDR. It doesn't just have to be eye movements back and forth. It could be that the client listens to tones back and forth, right? Beep, 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 right, left, back and forth. We could uh, have them focusing on a light that goes back and forth, or their therapist's fingers. We might tap on a client's hands as they rest in their. We might at the therapist might tap on a client's hands as they rest them in their own lap. Um, so there's many different forms of stimulation that we use. Um, and now there's something like 30 randomized controlled trials. That's kind of the ultimate form of research um, that can be cited to substantiate the positive effects of eye movements. You know, we can now unequivocally report that um, eye movements reduce negative emotions, imagery vividness, and emotional arousal, and that eye movements also increase or enhance memory retrieval recognition of true information, positive neurophysiological changes, and more flexible thinking. And there are, just getting back to your question about what's happening here, how do we explain this, um, there are many, many hypotheses about the mechanisms behind EMDR's effectiveness. So, for example, there's a response referred to as the orienting uh, response hypothesis Um where it said that eye movements elicit an orienting response, right? Look over there, look over there, look over there. Um, An orienting response that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, leading to a de-arousal effect, a relaxation response. And this gets the brain into an optimal state for processing. There's also a hypothesis called the working memory hypothesis or theory that suggests that eye movements, as well as other forms of stimulation, focusing on a memory while engaging in some other activity, like doing math or spelling words or doing dance steps or tapping out a rhythm, tax the limited capacity of working memory leading to a reduction in the vividness and emotionality of a traumatic memory. There is a lot of research supporting this hypothesis. It's very, very exciting. And then uh, Francine Shapiro's original hypothesis, hypothesis was the REM hypothesis, which says that eye movements activate the same neurological processes that occur in rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, leading to a reduction in negative emotion, more flexibility in thinking, increased associations between our memories, and increased insight.
0: It's so fascinating, and I and mm-hmm. I appreciate that there's been such a wealth of research that's been clinically shown that this is very effective, and yet there's still space uh, of of not completely knowing how exactly it's working, but the different hypotheses of how it may be working. But we know it works, and I thank you for for that breakdown, uh, Debbie. That that's really helpful. So, Michael, back over to you. What do? You, can you tell us what you remember about your first experience with EMDR therapy? What was it like for you? And I'm sure our listeners will want to know if the impact felt more or less immediate. Was it like flipping a switch, or was it more gradual? Because and I know it varies from person to person, but I'm curious about your experience.
1: So when I walked into Dr. Magneto's office, I was I would say at a, a probably the lowest point. So I was really ripe for intervention, um, and uh, for me, the experience was uh, of profound relief. And um, our initial work really focused on the severity of ne- the neglect that I uh, suffered. You know, those the the omission things that Debbie was talking about. You know, no one was taking care of me. No one was was paying attention to me. There was all, all the things my parents. Should have been doing, were not happening. So I had no attachment to either caregiver. So that first session was like, there was a dam that was holding all of this longing and grief and sadness uh, and isolation and all those things. And it's as if Dr. Magnavita just punched a hole the uh, size of a door in the bottom of the dam. And just this these waves of this emotion would just good was just flowing out through me and w- the result of that for me was definitely immediate and I l- remember leaving that day from the very first time I saw him very first time I did EMDR with this profound sense of relief and feeling like I had about two more quarts of lung capacity that I could feel when I would take a deep breath um and uh it was um like that pretty much every time I saw him. I saw him over the course of two years, um, uh, either weekly, or most weekly, or biweekly. And um, it was always the same. It was always immediate, and there was a sense of profound relief, which I did not get uh, through the 22 years of seeing other therapists, talk therapy, CBT therapy, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. None of the therapists ever mentioned or brought up the concept of trauma Mm -hmm. and none of them knew anything about EMDR. Mm -hmm.
2: And Michael, forgive me for interrupting. It just feels important to let folks know where you were at psychologically at the point that you walked into Dr. Magnavita's office in terms of uh, substances, in terms of phobias, in terms of PTSD symptoms, et cetera.
1: So, um, Deb's referring to the you know my, my state at the time which had uh, kind of devolved it was kind of a race to the bottom because um, I was I was suffering from well two nightmares that I had chronically over 40 years that were equally as terrifying the first time I had them as they were the most recent time I had them they never changed and I just had them repeatedly um, one was about heights one was about being quote-unquote arrested and put in jail and I just re- learned to understand what they really meant in my sort of closing uh, period with Dr. Magneta, uh, I had phobias. Uh, I didn't know they were phobias at the time. I just saw it there just the way I was uh, about using a, a stall in a men's restroom as a boy, uh, uh, fear of heights um, and getting into adulthood. Any suggestion of intimacy with a woman was, was literally panic inducing and Again, at the time, I didn't know what a phobia was. I thought this is just the way that I was. So um, there was a lot of alcohol abuse blacking out. And then later, um, alcohol combined with Vicodin. um, And uh, just I I look back and there was just, you know, increasingly um, high dosages of things I could, you know, ingest to try to numb or try to wall myself off from what was buried there but i didn't know it
0: yeah and so all of the different the variety of expressions and experience like the expressions of the trauma the traumatic symptoms coming out through phobias fears uncontrollable reactions different situations your nervous system spiking out of control attempting to attempting you know to to regulate those symptoms with substances to kind of numb out or go to sleep and um I just want listeners to understand that the overlaps of these of these symptoms, this constellation of symptoms and experiences, all tied into these still complex experiences of trauma and abuse. But it's it's a big knot, but you can see all the threads there. And it sounds like what EMDR therapy does, with the help of of a trained professional uh, and the and the memory work and so forth, helps you start to like un unthread. All of the knots and and help you know help your brain to process the memories that that have been frozen or stuck in place um, so th- thank you for that michael and and debbie i'm curious about uh, if you could tell us a little bit, if not with like specific numbers, how more or less you know quick is relative <laughs> i don 't mean like snap your fingers immediate, but how quickly compared to as Michael said, and I want to loop back around to that as a future therapist, that those 22 years, um, and, and I think you said eight different psychotherapists, um, that relied mostly on talk therapy, um, with, with no whiff of trauma being perhaps a part of what you were experiencing post-traumatic, um, uh, symptoms, how quickly relative to, you know, those like 22 years for, in Michael's case, can someone with these kinds of symptoms find relief through EMDR? Do we have any, uh, research that
2: that indicates that? Well, you know, when people ask me how many sessions are needed to achieve healing, um, I always say it depends, right? It's hard to say what the average length of treatment is for somebody working with an EMDR therapist because that depends on so many things. But early research in EMDR um, tells us uh, that 90% of adults dealing with a single episode trauma are able to eliminate or significantly reduce their PTSD symptoms in three or four sessions. So, you know, an assault, a car accident, a single episode, um, we can knock that out very quickly. Um, I was involved in a research study with Bessel van der Kolk comparing EMDR to pro- – I mentioned his name just because listeners might know his name from his best-selling book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score – Um, And we did a study comparing EMDR to Prozac um, uh, in the treatment of adult PTSD. Eight sessions of EMDR compared to a comparable period of time on Prozac. EMDR was ultimately superior to Prozac in reducing both PTSD symptoms and depression. Um, By the end of treatment, all of those in the EMDR group with adult only traumas had lost their PTSD diagnosis, along with 75% of those with childhood trauma histories. And six months later, at follow-up with no additional treatment, almost 90% of the childhood abuse survivors had lost their PTSD diagnosis, and a third were completely asymptomatic, and we were just blown away. And, you know, there's a recent meta-analysis that looks at all the research that's been done, uh, all the trauma treatments that uh, are being applied out there in the treatment of PTSD. And EMDR was found to be the most cost-effective, the most cost-efficient of 11 trauma therapies evaluated. And I'll mention um, that in the Netherlands, they are treating people in intensive EMDR treatment programs, you know, consecutive day programs. They're knocking out PTSD in four days with people who have complex trauma histories, you know, both single episode traumas, adult traumas, but also folks that have significant childhood abuse. So we are getting better and better, more and more proficient all the time in how to apply EMDR and working with complex cases.
0: It's really, really exciting. I want to ask you more about the future prospects, Debbie, but Michael, as a future, as I mentioned, a future mental health counselor in kind of like recoiling at the thought of 22 years of traditional talk therapy without any, you know, alleviation of symptoms. And in some cases, the symptoms actually getting worse over time. Um, What was the experience like for you to not be making anything that resembled what I imagined you would think is forward progress or healing or peace? Did it dishearten you to the therapeutic process yourself? And if so, what kept you trying, I guess, after all those years?
1: Um, uh, Trying over all those years, just, I think is a, just a part of my own tenacious personality. Uh, and I didn't want to give up, but I, I I think the last engagement, which was in New York with a talk therapist is probably the most representative in terms of answering your question. Because for me, and I have to be careful that I just frame this in my own particular experience. For me, the process of 50 minutes once a week in talk therapy I just felt like I just, I wasn't getting anywhere. And I felt like uh, we weren't breaking the glass or we weren't penetrating. We weren't getting anywhere. And and that's the last of the seven therapists that I saw. And at that point, I really was kind of at wit's end. And at that point also concurrent with that is, you know, I had, you know, a big tipping point for me having finally got to Ogilvy and Mather which for me in the advertising world was kind of like Mount Olympus. And I finally got to the place I'd wanted to work out my entire advertising career and I got laid off, Uh, which is a function of an account change where I I had no control over. So, you know, at that point, I just went off a cliff. Uh, You know, my high status, high paying job was gone Um, and everything that it it, uh, associated for me to the outside world was gone. Um, and I just kind of went again down in this sort of race to the bottom. I sold my apartment. I sold my car. I, I made a lot of really bad financial decisions. I was, I was walking around thinking I'm going to end up being penniless, you know, in a blanket in front of Walgreens in the snow, on, you know, in New York. And, and you know, it, my anxiety, you know, rose kind of on a daily basis. So my sister is the one who finally said, you know, if you're, if you're serious about doing something, I have someone I can recommend to you. And in my case, um, Glastonbury, Connecticut, where Dr. Margarita, uh, uh, uh practices, was 110 miles from New York. And I said, "Why, well, you no, know, to my sister? That's we well, 110 miles away. Well, so what? You know, are you serious or not?" And so I engaged in um, some consecutive work with him. So I would go and and spend um, have extended sessions with him because of the, you know the distance involved. So. I guess it's my case, another reason for wanting to do this is a case where you can see in my case that these other seven therapists who were not EMDR therapists, who were not trauma-informed therapists and didn't even talk about trauma, did not provide any substantive relief for me. The EMDR therapist and EMDR therapy provided profound relief for me. And I guess my case is just a sort of an extended example of that.
0: Yeah, we're quickly running out of time, and I could keep speaking with you with you both for for hours. Um, but I do want to kind of start to look at the uh, take a forward focus with with what possibilities are available. But also, um, Michael, your your story of recovery uh, and how you're doing now. I certainly don't want to leave listeners without knowing how how things have been for you in. Um, in utilizing EMDR and alleviating those um, post-traumatic symptoms, uh, how are you doing now? Um, maybe you can tell us a story about uh, well, a how you're doing now, and b the story about your brother, which I've I've heard you tell before, um, yeah. as an example of what healing is is remains possible so when you do this work.
1: Okay, so don't laugh, Debbie may laugh. I literally was about. I was going to send a picture of my freezer and refrigerator to Doctor Magneta because it's full of food and stuff. And I cook for myself every, you know, in my nader period, maybe there's a, a jar of mustard in the entire apparatus. You know, it just could was just empty. It's reflective of my inner state, I think. But um, I'll tell you two things. Number one, my existence, which uh, I would say a steady state from pre-verbal was an existence for lack of a better reference, of a of living operating system of anxiety and dread and fear and uncertainty and feeling worthless and unlovable. That was the operating system I, I operated, had to deal, with operate with. What EMDR did for me was allow me to replace that operating system with one that was free of all that malware, you know, so I could just wake up and just be like, free of all that. And it just, you know, what, what day is it? What am I going to do today? And none of those things. I remember in college waking up and having this overwhelming sense of dread. And I had no idea why. So that was, that's the most profound way I can describe it because it has to do with your, you know your existential reality, every single day in your waking life. My brother, who was a bully, um, my, you know, up through high school and I was, I was terrified of him. I lived in complete fear and terror of him every waking moment. And I was convinced I would never, ever, ever have a relationship with him. Before the book was published, Dr. Magvita said, you have to let him know it's coming out. So I kind of reluctantly reached out to my brother, and he reached back to me. And he said, you could say whatever you want about me. Just I'll be excited if this means that we might finally have a chance to have a relationship. Nothing would bring me more joy. And do you think Debbie could recommend an EMBR therapist for me? So he went on an EMBR therapy journey with a a therapist that Debbie recommended for, you know, it's been over a year and a half now, nothing short of transformative. We as brothers had our first, you know, vacation together on a Monday, which was his 70th birthday. And um, it's, it's the most incredible, I, I think of it, nothing short of a miracle. And I remember, I remember being, on another trip, we would take it too. One with just uh, David and myself, and one with my uh, him, him and his two daughters. And uh, we had to share an Airbnb, so David and I had to share a room and bunk beds. <laughs> and I remember he'd get up into that, close the door, turn the light off, and we talk for a minute. And then I would just be in my lower bunk bed, as if I was in a. a, a um, you know, the those sunbathing pods, you know, rays coming down from the, because I was experiencing my realization of how much I loved my brother and feeling so intimately and, and, and intimate and close with him. And it was just some, such a profound experience because I always wanted to have this relationship and never have. So I can't think of a more miraculous example than that of the kind of dividends and benefits in my life that EMDR gave me.
0: Yeah, thank and you so much. Yeah, go ahead, Debbie. It's
2: just worth saying that all of those symptoms, you know, the phobias, the um, the substance issues, you know, all of the things that Michael described earlier were gone, are gone, were gone. And the relational shifts, I think, extend to all of the people in your life, not just your brother, but those relationships have all deepened immensely.
0: Oh, Yeah. So, Debbie, as we wrap up here, um, you know, I, I like to ask our guests, and Mike, I'll ask you the same question as well with our, our couple of minutes that we have left. I would like to ask, what is the new story? You know, what new story would you like to see um, the future become or the present become with something like EMDR? Um, you talked a little bit about what's going on in the Netherlands right now. This is a very cost efficient, very effective therapy. What, where does your mind go, Debbie? Do you think about the popularization publicly. Do you think about we need more mental health counselors and helping professionals to be trauma informed and trained in this? What comes up for you as you think about prospects for the future and uh, public mental health at large?
2: Yeah, um, I think you hit on it. I, I would like the education uh, with regard to mental health and trauma specifically to continue and to expand. Uh, I would like the average person to know what EMDR therapy is and that it's available to them. Um, And, uh, you know, EMDR is strongly recommended as as a treatment for PTSD and the treatment guidelines of organizations around the world, right? The World Health Organization, uh, the U S department of veterans affairs and defense, the American psych association. It's known by many as a treatment for PTSD, but I would like to see folks begin to um, grasp the idea that that EMDR is an effective treatment for uh, any kinds of experiences that have had a lasting effect on you and any kind of symptoms, right? So in addition to PTSD, evidence is mounting in support of EMDR therapy uh, in work with children and adolescents, acute PTSD reactions after recent traumas, combat PTSD, depression, chronic pain um you know it's being used with a wide range of diagnoses and issues not necessarily recognized by most as trauma based eating disorders phobias uh general anxiety sexual dysfunction um fibromyalgia medically unexplained symptoms um OCD psychotic disorders addictions all of these disorders um are uh, are able to be treated to some degree with EMDR therapy and uh, with great efficiency again. So I would like to see EMDR to become better known. I'd like folks to begin looking more readily through a trauma-informed lens, and I'd like people to think about EMDR uh, for more than just PTSD.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. It sounds like we we may just be, there's so much we've already learned and achieved with EMDR, but we may still just be just beginning in a lot of ways, and that's that's actually quite exciting, Michael. I want to give you the last word. Um, when you think about your own experience, your own story, and your own healing journey, which of course you know continues, um, I'm sure as it does for us all, but uh, in in new ways, in different ways. What would you like to tell someone who's listening, who maybe has a their own experience of a traumatic traumatic history? What what new story would you like them them to know is possible?
1: I have two words for them: don't wait. I I. When I was in my 20s, which, which would have been very fortuitous to have met Dr. Magavita, <clears throat> EMDR had not been, you know, it hadn't been discovered yet. Today, you can go on EMDRIA.org, put in your zip code and find certified EMDR therapists near you. Um, it's pretty easy. So my, I guess my, my message to your listeners or if you are suffering or anyone you care about is suffering, don't. Wait, because trauma is a part of life. It's like a stone in your shoe, a thorn in your side. And less than until that is removed, it's going to continue to affect the way you see the world, the way you see yourself and the choices you make. Removed, you get to go and live your life. <laughs> and that's what EMDR therapy is about. It's about the most effective and efficient way of removing the traumatic memories, getting them out of your central nervous system and allowing you to go and live your life. So we're hoping that I think our mission is to finally push EMDR out into the zeitgeist. And like I was very heartened, like I, you know, I'm looking at the New York times today and there's a whole article about, uh, uh, the movie, the show succession and how it's all about family intergenerational family trauma. That's right. Well, I wish they had had this little thing at the end about how, you know, about EMDR is the most effective way to deal with it, but that's our goal. And, um, we, it's just, uh, I hope we get to see the day that it's as commonplace as ATM or, uh, you know, all the other acronyms that people take for granted, um, reach for Advil. If you have a headache, uh, well, if you, if you have, if you're suffering EMDR is where you want to start.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe the three of us can go on to start a succession, uh, podcast. We talk about the episodes that we can break down to just, yes. just like use it as subterfuge to, to talk about yeah. <laughs> trauma and EMDR and everything. Um, well, Michael Baldwin and Deborah Korn, they're the co-authors of Every Memory Deserves Respect. You can find out more about their, their book, their work, and a lot of other resources at everymemorydeservesrespect.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us, for, for your bravery, your tenacity, and for sharing your story with us. Thank you.
1: What, what a pleasure. Thank you for having us.
0: And Deborah, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for sharing your experiences, for educating us, and for breaking down a, some pretty heady, complex subjects, but to make them really accessible for us to understand. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Dave. Thanks for having us. It was a delight to be here.
1: By the way, Dave, I have to tell you, I loved your intro. Oh, well done. Seriously.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. You can subscribe, follow, and like our show, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave a rating and review to help others find the show. If you'd like to suggest a guest or pitch yourself for the show, email me. Best way to get in touch is hello at thenewstory.is. If you think that a friend or family member would enjoy this episode, please share it with them. You can always link people to thenewstory.is slash podcast to help others find and listen to our work. Until next time, dear friend, thank you for listening. Keep storing on. Bye for now.